Next to last message in Habakkuk. Now, before we get into the entire message, and by the way, this sort of, this part of the passage or chapter divides out this way. The first two verses of chapter 3, we're going to see the request of the prophet. In verses 3 through 15, we're going to see the revelation given to the prophet. And then in verse 16, we're going to see the reeling of the prophet after the revelation of God that he is given. But on Sunday, I, I shared with you, and I want to start out tonight with this, that I was going to share with you what I think is an indispensable characteristic or quality that you and I need to have in our lives if we're going to connect with people in ministry. If God is going to be able to use our lives in a greater and, and greater way, to be able to touch more lives through our life. What, what is that characteristic that is so important? Well, in chapter 3, you will notice that after God basically gave him an understanding to a point of why he chose the Babylonians and the fact that, you know, God was still going to judge the Babylonians one day too for all their evil and wickedness, and that in spite of Habakkuk's hang-ups with what's going to happen, it's still going to happen. The Bible says Habakkuk has the faith to pray to God. And that's important. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I, I want you to note this. This is a very personal prayer in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Habakkuk the prophet. In other words, this is Habakkuk still sort of wrestling, if you will, and struggling with God. And really, we have seen that throughout this entire book. From day one, chapter one, verse one, he's like, God, how long am I going to cry out to you and I don't see any justice? I don't see anything going on here. So from the very beginning, we see Habakkuk just being very transparent about his struggle. And I want you to see tonight that even though this is a personal prayer, notice the choice that Habakkuk makes at the very end of chapter 3 when the Bible says this prayer Habakkuk intended for the song leader, it is to be accompanied by stringed instruments. In other words, I'm not keeping this prayer that I'm praying to myself. I want this prayer to be turned into a, basically, a worship song because I want other people to benefit and profit from my struggle, from my wrestling with God. And so, to me, one of the most indispensable characteristics that you and I can have in our Christian life, if God is going to continue to use our lives more and more, is that we be willing, again, at the right time, at the right place, and certainly in the right context, to share our struggles with others. Why? Why is that so important? Why will that expand the amount of people that we can minister to? Because we're relatable. 
Because we're relatable. Because people relate to others who have gone through struggles. If you and I as Christians come across to either our fellow Christians or to other people like, we got this all figured out. We never struggle. We never have any difficulties. We never have any problems. We never wrestle with God about anything. Life is pretty easy for us. I guarantee you one thing. That may be your perspective, but you will have very, very few people throughout your life that will either come to you or that you will go to and that will be able to relate to that. Why is it that even as Christians, we relate to certain Bible characters over others? We, because we relate to them. We, we love the story of like Joseph in the book of Genesis because we get it. We love the Psalms and we love David because we, we understand that too because we sometimes feel and think and say the same things. Why do we relate to people like Peter in the New Testament who failed? Because we relate to that. And that can minister to us. And too often as Christians, I think we feel like, you know, I got to come across like I've got my whole act together in my life and I don't struggle with anything. Again, all I will say is very, very few people will be able to relate to that. Now, again, I'm not saying that we have to tell or air all of our dirty laundry to everybody and all of that. But what I am saying is there's a right time, a right place, and a right context to share our struggles. That gives it purpose. It gives it meaning to us. Because what we learn through that and what, how we benefited and profited through struggling through things and wrestling through things, then we know that God will bring to us throughout our lifetime, if we're willing to be vulnerable and we're willing to humble ourselves, then He will bring other people to us who can benefit from the story that we have to tell about how God brought us through even though we had trouble at times. Even yesterday. By the way, thank you all for praying for little Lindsay. She made it through the surgery and the surgeon basically said it, it went as good as it could have possibly went under the circumstances. I mean, she's got a long road of recovery, even for a 20-year-old gal, but she's, she made it through. But as I was talking to her before she went into surgery yesterday, I said, Lindsay... I know you would have never chosen to have to go through what you're going through. But I said, I want, I want to tell you something. By you going through this, you're going to have a ministry for the rest of your life. Because you're going to have a story to tell if you're willing to tell it. You're going to have a testimony. You're going to have a witness to other people about this awful trial that you were handed that was no fault of your own, but how God brought you through it. And you can testify to that. And you can look other people eyeball to eyeball for the rest of your life who are going through maybe a really deep trial or a a major surgery in their life, and they're going to be able to relate to you. 
and you're going to be able to minister to them and you would have never had that kind of ministry had you never went through something like this. That's why God wants His people to embrace, even though we would never choose it, to embrace the suffering and trials that we go through. In fact, I think this is so important. Keep, keep there in the back. We will come back to that tonight. And go over to the book of 1 Peter just real quick. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By His great mercy, He gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it is reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. This brings you great joy, although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials. Such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold. And then if you go over to chapter 5, the very last chapter of the book, notice what Peter writes, verse 10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How can we count it all joy when we fall into trials? Why can we embrace suffering? Because it's going to show the proven character of our faith. Not only to us, it's in a sense going to reaffirm and, and, and confirm in our lives, yeah, I, I really do know the Lord because the only way I could be going through this like I am, the only way I could, I could have the perspective that I'm having, the only way I could have the peace that passes all understanding is because I know the Lord and I'm walking with Him. But it's also a way to prove to others your faith and my faith. And we're not going to do that if everything in our life is always rosy and always good. Just like Satan did with Job, he's going to say, well, no wonder, you know, he's always happy and, you know, everything's all good with Job. Because nothing ever has happened to Job. So by God in his wisdom allowing Satan to touch Job, it opened up even for Job this ministry that Job had for the rest of his life that he would have never had. Because now throughout every life that Job touched, everyone knew Job's story. And what Job lost and what he went through. And yet he says, I came forth like gold. I was better for it than I ever was before in spite of all that God took from me. That's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying in chapter 3, this is a personal prayer, but I'm sending it to the worship leader. I want this to be turned into a worship song because I want other people to know I struggled and yet it was through my struggle that God built into my life a high-altitude faith. A faith that was stronger because I was willing to struggle. Because I was really willing to grab hold of God and embrace Him even through the most difficult time in my life when I knew, as an Israelite, that the Babylonians were coming and there was not a thing I could do about it. I couldn't change it. And I just had to be willing to embrace it and say, God... I don't like this. I would have never chosen this. But me and the rest of us are going to be better off because of it. That's high altitude faith. That's faith that can walk through the most difficult terrain. So back to Habakkuk chapter 3. 
you will notice in the first couple of verses, he says, this is a prayer. By the way, it's also sort of a psalm. That's why he sent it. It's a prayer psalm. From Habakkuk, the prophet, Lord, I have heard the report of what you did. I am awed, Lord, by what you accomplished. He's he's recounting the history of God with his people. And he says, God, as a young man, I listened with great interest and attention to the things that you did that were passed down to me through oral tradition. Remember, at this time, there was no Bible that was written down. If the people of God wanted to know what God did in the previous generations, it was up to the previous generation to pass that orally down to, to tell them the stories of God to each other. And Habakkuk said, I listened to my ancestors and to my elders of what they relayed to me about what you did. And I was in awe. Basically, he said, it led me to a greater respect and reverence for you. So notice something. How do you and I learn about the deeds of God? Well, primarily today, it's not through oral tradition. It's through the Bible. So you'll notice again here, even in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, what do we have? We have the word of God or the story of God or the stories of God and what God has done in the past driving and fueling our worship. He says, I heard these things and I heard what you did and I was left in awe. All I could do was worship. But then notice a couple requests that Habakkuk the prophet makes here. He says, God, in our time, repeat those deeds. Literally, revive, renew those works, those deeds that you did in the past. In our time, reveal them again. And the word reveal is a very interesting word in the Hebrew. It means to know. In other words, Habakkuk is saying, God, I want you to move. I want you to shake your people. I want you to work in such a way that they will know you, that we all will know you better because of it. In a sense, Habakkuk here is praying, for revival. He's saying, God, bring revival to your people. We have turned our backs on you. We have listened to the prophet Jeremiah preach for 40 years and we have ignored the great prophet Jeremiah. And now you are going to send us into Babylonian exile for 70 years. I know it's coming. And I know in a sense we deserve it. Habakkuk never really had a problem with the fact that God was going to judge his people as much as the instrument of judgment. The wicked Babylonians that were more wicked in Habakkuk's mind than the people of God had become even in their idolatry. What a great prayer or request. I sort of feel like that's where we are as Christians today in our world. You know, for the most part, our our nation and the world has turned its back on God, ignored God, kicked God out of their lives. They don't want anything to do with God. And so to me, the people of God need to to be praying like Habakkuk and God, move and work and and show your, your might and your power and your presence like you used to so that we can know you even better. Bring revival Renew us. Give us life again. It's almost like Habakkuk could see those dead bones that Ezekiel talks about. And the bones start to move and and rattle. And then God begins to put, you know, sinew and muscle and 
arteries and then flesh and all that on and, and build them back up. That's what Habakkuk is praying for here. And it's something you and I should pray. We should pray it for ourselves. God, move in my life. Work in my life. Renew yourself in me. Revive me. Light that fire again in me so that I can know you better. That's one request. But then the second one is this. When you cause all of this upheaval, remember to show us mercy. Whenever you cause turmoil, and by the way, the word there in the Hebrew means to get our undivided attention. You see, like again, many people today, they were not paying attention to God. And God said, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in. And you're going to go into exile into Babylon. Now, some obviously stayed behind, but many, like Daniel and his friends, went in exile to Babylon. And Habakkuk is saying, God, I know you want to get our attention. Unfortunately, it's going to take something drastic. Some crisis like this. And that's the way it is with many people today. God doesn't want to have to do something drastic, turning our lives upside down to get our attention, but if that's what it takes for God to finally get our attention, that's what God will do. Why? Because God loves us too much to let us ignore Him any longer. Because the longer we ignore Him, the more we get into a spiritually unhealthy place. But Habakkuk said this. Habakkuk said, God, when you... Bring the Babylonians on us. And I know they're coming. I can't do anything to stop that. Remember mercy. Be tender toward us, even though we deserve it. And I love this word. In the Hebrew, it speaks about not only a tenderness and, and a compassion, but a love of great depth. He says, God, don't, don't stop loving us as much as you ever have. And, and obviously God doesn't. In fact, everything God does is motivated out of his great and deep love for his people. And Habakkuk's just saying, just, I know it's going to be bad, God, but just remember to be merciful in the midst of it all. And he was. God was. You think about how even to those that were exiled into Babylon, how, look at the book of Daniel, how God protected and took care of them and actually raised Daniel and his friends up to leadership positions in Babylon. God was merciful to his people. To those especially that looked to him in faith and believed in him, he honored them. Even in the midst of this judgment, God was merciful. And God always has a remnant, a small group of people who are willing to believe even when others do not pay attention. So that was the request of the prophet. Two things. One, God, revive us again. And two, as you're getting our undivided attention, be merciful. Be compassionate towards your people. And Habakkuk knew in a sense too that he could pray that with confidence. Why? Because he based that on the promises of God. All the way back in the book of Genesis, when God said to Abraham, Abraham, 
I'm going to make out of you a great nation and you will bless all the nations of the world. All the Jewish people knew that they would never be completely wiped out in any kind of judgment or exterminated. Why? Because the Messiah was going to have to come through them. So there had to be some of them left. That's why even in Noah's day, in in the judgment, there had to be at least a family left for the Messiah because God promised even Adam and Eve, I'm going to curse the serpent And he's going to get on his belly for the rest of his existence. And you're going to strike the seed of the woman in the head. But he's going to bruise your heel. In other words, it was the promise of a redeemer. All the way back in Genesis 3.15. Well, in order for God to do that, obviously God had to preserve the line of the Messiah. And so Habakkuk knew, I know not all of us are going to be wiped out by this. As horrific as the Babylonian judgment was. And even in that, God showed mercy. Well, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 3, I believe that from verse 3 through verse 15, Habakkuk is given a revelation from God. So that Habakkuk can, can really see, and I think it's a vision, I think God gives Habakkuk basically a vision of, in a sense, his exploits in setting his people free from Egypt and bringing them to the brink of the Jordan River and the Promised Land. I want to read these verses to you. Notice in verse 3 and 4, first of all, we have the appearance of God, and then in verse 5 through verse 15, the actions of God. God comes from Teman, the sovereign one from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the skies. His glory fills the earth. He is as bright as lightning. A two-pronged lightning bolt flashes from his hand. This is the outward display of his power. In the Hebrew, you don't get this in the English translation. What it's saying is, This is just an infinitesimal display of his power. I don't know what's the worst thunderstorm and lightning storm you've ever experienced, you've ever been in. But basically, however strong it was, however loud the thunder was, however strong the lightning was, the prophet is realizing that's just an infinitesimal display of God's power. In a sense... As he, as he sees God, he is realizing that you could put everything in creation and put all the power of everything in creation on one side of the scale and God on the other side, and there would be no contest. All the power of everything created can't even begin to have the power that God himself has in himself. Think about the glory of God. He's brighter. You could put all the stars in all the universe, again, on one side and God on the other side. And all the brightness of all the stars combined cannot be brighter than God himself. No wonder he's in awe of God. He's beginning to see who God really is and get a a glimpse of him. 
God's glory is seen, as we've said, from the minutest subatomic particle to the vastness of the universe. God's glory and power is on display. And Habakkuk the prophet is beginning to see his appearance as he comes. And then notice his actions. Plague goes before him, as we learned in the book of Exodus. Pestilence marches right behind him. He takes his battle position and shakes the earth. With a mere look, he frightens the nations. The ancient mountains disintegrate. The primeval hills are flattened. He travels on the ancient roads. I see the tents of Kushan overwhelmed. The tent curtains of the land of Midian are shaking. Is the Lord mad at the rivers? Are you angry with the rivers? Are you enraged at the sea? Is this why you climb into your horse-drawn chariots, your victorious chariots? Your bow is ready for action. You commission your arrows. Selah. You cause flash floods on the earth's surface. When the mountains see you, they shake. The torrential downpour sweeps through. The great deep shouts out. It lifts its hands high. The sun and moon stand still in their courses. The flash of your arrows drives them away. The bright light of your lightning, lightning quick spear. You furiously stomp on the earth. You angrily trample down the nations. You march out to deliver your people, to deliver your special servant. You strike the leader of the wicked nation, laying him open from the lower body to the neck. Selah. You pierce the heads of his warriors with a spear. They storm forward to scatter us. They shout with joy as if they were plundering the poor with no opposition. But you trample on the sea with your horses on the surging, raging waters. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 15, the song of victory that Miriam and Moses and Aaron sing, what do they say? The horse and rider God threw into the sea. Even though Pharaoh and all his army chased after him, God drew the Red Sea and just swallowed him right up. And notice a couple things in that passage. Why does God display such power? Well, one reason is to bring justice and order to his universe. Every once in a while, God lets man go and lets man have his free will, but there comes a point where God says, enough is enough, I'm stepping in. And that's what God did here. Another reason, though, why God displays his power in such an awesome way, don't miss this. Verse 13, you march out to what? Deliver your people for their salvation, for their rescue, for their welfare. That's why God did it. Not only to bring justice to the Egyptians, not only will God bring justice to the Babylonians, but is to deliver his own people, to save them, to rescue them. Notice here in this passage from verse 3 through verse 15 that the Lord is pictured as a divine warrior. Verse 6, he takes his battle position. He talks about his chariots in verse 8, victorious chariots. He talks about his bow and his arrows that fly. He talks about God stomping on the earth like a great army. In fact, in verse 13, the words march out speak of God as an army of one. And what Habakkuk wants his people to see is God is a mighty warrior and will fight on our behalf. In fact, I want to quickly go to a couple verses tonight. I want to start actually and go backwards. If you go from Habakkuk and just go over one book, go to the book of Zephaniah. 
to probably the most familiar verse in the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3.17. It's a verse that's quoted by many Christians, and it's a great verse. But I want you to notice a lot of times we talk about the Lord singing over us, but we forget the first part of the verse. Zephaniah 3.17, right after the book of Habakkuk. The Lord your God is in your midst. Notice, he is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. I want you to note tonight, the the part that I want you to concentrate on is, he is a warrior who can deliver. Then if you go back to the book of Isaiah, so now go left, instead of right, back through all the major prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and you'll come to Isaiah chapter 42. If I can turn the page here, I'll get it. And verse 13. I love this. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord emerges like a hero. Like a warrior, he inspires himself for battle. He shouts. Yes, he yells. He shows his enemies his power. That's exactly what the revelation of God to Habakkuk was. God, in a sense, took Habakkuk back to how he delivered his people out of Egypt. And he saw a vision of some of the things that God did in delivering his people as a warrior. And then if you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. I'm just going to begin at verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now notice verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. What's Habakkuk? Seeing, he's seeing a God who displays his immense, immeasurable, almighty power on behalf of his people. Yes, at times to bring justice and order, but also to deliver his people. And here's the personal application for you and I tonight. God will do the same thing for you as an individual believer in his son, Jesus Christ. Look at, uh, excuse me, Exodus 14, 14. I love this. Exodus 14, 14, just back a chapter. The Lord will fight for you so that you can be still. And the word still there just means you can be settled. You can be at rest. Why? Because the Lord is going to fight this battle for you. That's why David, this young shepherd boy, could go and face a giant guy like Goliath with such confidence and courage. Why? Because he said, this battle isn't my battle, this battle's the Lord. Yes, he wants me to come forward, and he wants me to meet you, and he wants me to challenge you, but you falling and you dying, that's going to be the Lord. He's going to take these stones and he's going to supernaturally energize them out of my sling and he's going to have them hit their mark and they're going to kill you, giant, because I'm not fighting you. The Lord is fighting, you see. And that's what God wants his people to see. He's like, guys, 
if you let me fight your battles for you, you can be still. I am the God that is brighter than all the stars combined in the universe. I'm a God that you can put all the strength of everything in the universe on one side, and I'm still stronger. That's how great I am. And I will fight for you. I will bring all my resources to bear as God so that you can be at rest and you can be settled and not be filled with such you know, care and angst and worry and fret and all these things because I am the God of the universe and I know you by name and I will fight for you. Be still and know that I am God. What a God. See, high-altitude faith is learning this lesson. That if I'm following the Lord, it's not that bad things or trials or suffering might not come into my life. But but I got the divine warrior on my side. He's going to fight for me. I'm not fighting these battles on my own. I'm not fighting any enemy on my own. I'm not fighting my circumstance on my own. I've got the Lord of glory on my side. He will fight for you. So he wants us then to be still. To be settled. To be at rest. To rest in him. And not get so twisted. And when we learn to do that, that's high altitude faith. That's faith that can navigate the most difficult terrain. Now in light of this great revelation, Notice the reeling of the prophet back in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I listened to all this, and he said, my stomach churned. The sound made my lips quiver. My frame went lip as if my bones were decaying, and I shook as I tried to walk. And he does that. I long for the day of distress to come upon the people who attack us. I'm waiting for that too. But notice something here. When God moves in and upon his people, there will be both physiological and psychological results. The prophet is literally like feeling like he's walking on ground that is undulating and like he's walking while there's an earthquake going on. His lips are quick. What? He, he has seen the glory and power and majesty of his God. He has, he has recounted the amazing feats that God has done to deliver his people and bring justice. And he is overwhelmed and he is dumbfounded and he is in awe. Oh, that the church would see God move and work in us and amongst us in such a way that we would literally experience physiological and psychological effects from it. And if you've been walking with the Lord for any time at all, You've been there probably at least like I have a couple times in your life where either it was you and God alone 
And God so His presence and power so sort of came over you and overshadowed you that there was sort of like a physical and, and, and physiological and, and psychological reaction and response to it all. But you may have also, like I, been sometimes in, in church amongst God's people where you saw and you literally felt God moving and working in and amongst His people to the point where it physically and psychologically, mentally sort of affected you. I remember one time it was like I was paralyzed. I was totally, you know, awake and and all of that, but I felt like I couldn't move, like God just like froze me. And I had just become so overwhelmed with the presence of God. That's, in a sense, can I say, Habakkuk had already gotten an answer to his request when he said, God, in our time, repeat those deeds, and in our time, reveal them again. Because when God showed Habakkuk this vision of him marching out of Teman, bringing salvation and rescue and deliverance to his people, when he saw God for who he was and all of his glory and power and all of that, he was just, he was reeling. It sort of reminds me of the book of Acts. When the people of God were just so devoted and committed and and just waiting on God, what did God do? The Spirit came, the house shook, they started speaking in tongues. I mean, it, it was like God was there and there was something tangible. It wasn't just a spiritual thing where it was invisible. You could see it, you could feel it, you could touch it, you could sense it. And I believe that when God truly moves in and amongst His people, that we sense it at that level too. It's not just on the spiritual level. It's on the physical and mental level as well. Just like Habakkuk felt God. I'll share one other thing. I remember one Sunday, as a young 11, 12-year-old boy, standing in church and we were singing, Just As I Am. You know, the old Billy Graham, you know, at the end of the crusade song. It was one that in my home church back, back in the 60s, we, we did that a lot at the end of the service. And I stood there in that pew, and I knew I did not have a personal relationship with the Lord. And I knew I should go forward and, and, and receive Christ as my Savior. And I want to tell you, it wasn't just a spiritual experience. I was shaking. There was sweat running down my face. I was experiencing physiological and psychological effects from God moving in my life. It was almost as if, too, my chest just tightened right up. And yet, so cool. As soon as I took a step to start going out of that pew and forward, it was like all that was lifted. It was like God was just trying to apply some gentle pressure to say, Jeff, don't wait. 
Go forward and ask Jesus to be your Savior. See, when you and I start interacting with God at that kind of a level, it won't just be on a spiritual level. We will experience physical and and emotional effects from God moving and working in our life. That's why it's okay to cry in church. That's why it's okay to weep when maybe you and God are having a precious time together. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to just shout. Praise the Lord. Start singing. God wants this relationship with Him to be so real to us that it just it, it goes beyond the spiritual level. And it gets really real. And that's what Habakkuk experienced. Well, next week when you come back, we finish out this great book. We're going to see where the prophet ends up. And I'll just say this. He ends up by saying, the sovereign Lord is my strength. And we're going to talk about that next week. Thank you all for committing to these eight weeks and for hanging in there with me. Let's close in prayer. God, bless your people, we pray. God, for the effort that these folks here in Arizona have made, especially tonight, to come out when it was close to 120 degrees today. It was uncomfortable. They had put in a long day. They were tired. That heat drained them. And yet, God, they made the effort to be here tonight. Would you bless them and favor them? Would you show yourself strong on their behalf? And God, as they leave here tonight, would they go home? And would they wake up tomorrow realizing that you are their divine warrior? You will fight for them so that we all can be still and be settled and be at rest in you. You are an amazing God. Help us to begin to just get a glimpse of how glorious, how, how wonderful, how great you are, God. May we have such an encounter with you that is so real, God, that it shakes us to the very core of our being like it did the prophet Habakkuk. Revive your church, God. Do the things that you did before. Renew those deeds so that we can know you more and more. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for being here.